Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. David Traster about mental health and brain injury. This episode is brought to you by the Functional Neurology Center, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by a caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are leaders in neural recovery and experienced in treating complex concussion cases with dysautonomia, vertigo, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They've greatly helped me and many others. You can find them online at thefunctionalneurologycenter.com. Hello, everyone. I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors, by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I am a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I am author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, available on Amazon. I also recently launched the Brain Health Magazine, and you can grab your free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. You can learn more about me and catch all the previous podcasts at facesoftbi.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And also, I invite you to join my Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. Today, my guest is Dr. David Traster, and he is a globally recognized expert in the field of neurological rehabilitation. He lectures and consults for doctors of all specialties across the world relating to patients with a variety of neurological disorders. He is most noted for working with patients suffering from head injuries, dizziness, balance disorders, and chronic pain. Due to his clinical success, Patients travel, the ro- travel around the world to work with Dr. Trasseter during his one- and two-week intensive outpatient programs. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Traster. So happy to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. You've been on the podcast before, and you've also been on the Brain Health Summit. Um, I know at least once. Were you on it twice? I can't remember anymore. <laughs> I think so, but typically we talk about, you know, like more body symptoms, you know, headaches, neck pain, dizziness. You know, or today I wanted to talk, especially like nowadays, I wanted to spend some yeah. time and talk about mood yeah. disorders and how you actually feel because these are things that are overlooked. Sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes testing is not great to identify them. And it really mm-hmm. can make people isolated. It can make people angry. It can make people have a tons of emotions that will negatively impact their recovery and their general health. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, this past month, I've kind of kicked up my podcast production. I'm doing two to three a week instead of just one um, because I know people are looking for an outlet, you know, they're, they're, they're staying at home and have a lot of extra free time on their hands. So I am really thankful for you and all the other doctors that have been on this past month and really, really great topic to touch on right now. Um, I would love to start though with asking you to share with our listeners how you came 
to work in the brain injury world? That's not a problem. Well, first, when I was 13, I was at a basketball camp. I was in the top bunk bed. And at that time, there were no barriers to stop you from falling off the top bunk bed. And there were also (laughs) as many lawsuits. (laughs) So what happened was I was in a sleeping bag and my feet fell off the top bunk bed. I did a flip in the air and I cracked my head on like a pretty much a metal bunk bed. You know, I was knocked unconscious. My head was cracked open. I was bleeding everywhere. And I was probably out for a few minutes before they shook me open at like three in the morning. And wow. so as a combination of that, I get rushed into a, you know, basketball camp kind of health cabin with a doctor who, who knows who he is. I've never met him before. They stitch up my head. They give me a tennis oh, wow. shot right away because I was on a metal bunk bed. So I right away got a tennis shot and then that was it. I never heard anything about the word concussion in my life until mm-hmm. later in my life. And then, so I realized later on a, that event changed my life in many ways that I didn't even know until I was older and understood more about concussions. And so now at 37, I could look at when I was 13 as my brain was developing and things that start happening to me from ages 13 to 16, specifically not just physical symptoms, but also mental symptoms and mood disorders, you know, and think how personality changes that I thought was maybe puberty at the time. But looking back at it, it is obvious it was from a brain injury. You know, and then as far as how I got into this, I got very fortunate. Um, I was at school, and a famous concussion doctor came, saw a lot of different types of people, everywhere from professional athletes to your grandmother. And so I got exposed to a type of therapy that was very beneficial to a lot of people who really tried all different options. And, you know, this option for them really helped them. Yeah. And, you know, I really love when doctors have that personal connection to brain injury. I mean, I don't love the fact that you yourself had a concussion, Um, but, you know, I think it helps make you a better doctor when you can actually relate to what your patients are going through. So, yeah. I agree. Um, I think that I had a really bad one. And then about a year or two later, I fell off my bike and had a little one. But that little one, because of the bad one earlier, had a consequence. You know, or if I didn't have the bad one earlier, the little one probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But looking back at it, I had two significant concussions. One was really significant. And one was significant because the first one never was treated, probably didn't heal correctly, and it left me susceptible for a second injury. And so realistically, you know, it gives uh, another perspective of issues we see in the concussion world, the second impact syndromes, um, proper awareness, diagnosis, education. So a second hit doesn't have as much of an impact if you treat the first one effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, how many people when they're 13 or even younger, you know, you know, fall off a bike, get hit by a car, fall out of a tree, fall out of a bunk bed. Um, You know, nobody ever thinks anything of it. So I think awareness is growing. Parents are a little more aware of, of what the consequences could be. Um, But we still have a long way to go. So that's why we all continue to do what we do. Yeah, and I think the scariest thing, which is what we'll touch on today, is that, again, there's difference between causation and association, which we'll touch on. But having said that, we know if you have a concussion, especially when you're younger, during brain development, there's associations with everything from prison to domestic violence, homelessness, for all types of mood disorders, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, substance abuse, 
you know? I mean, these are things, and it's scary because look at, like, suicidal thoughts. It's actually shown in research that it's more common after concussion to have suicidal thoughts six months after concussion compared to three months. So it's mm-hmm. not like you get a concussion, you get suicidal thoughts, and it goes away. It's the opposite, actually, where the longer you're impaired, the more likely it is that you're going to start getting these type of thoughts, and it's a huge issue in this world. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into the topic. Where, where would you like to start? Um, like I said, I think that first thing, let's just touch on the fact that one in three people in this country have a diagnosed mood disorder. Forget about concussion. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So right. one in three people have a diagnosed mood disorder. This is what we know for sure today in 2020. You can't diagnose CTE until you're dead. That's what we know. We know that a lot of people are worried about the association with concussion and cognitive and mood disorders that you might see in dementias. So we understand Mm -hmm. that. We understand that there is an association with repetitive head injuries and a likelihood of cognitive mood disorders. So we understand that. But we also don't understand why some people at age 80 die at stage one CTE and never progress to stage four when other people do. We don't really understand why there's a select percentage of the population who don't have histories of head injuries that after they die, they have a brain that would be diagnosed as CTE. You know, so there are certain things that we still don't fully understand about CTE. So education and awareness is important, but also understanding that we don't know everything and to have a rational approach to everything. So we don't freak out because a lot of people are worried the second they hit their head, they're guaranteed to get CTE. Right. And right now, that's not case, right? So that's the right now, that's the first thing I want to say is when we start looking at these associations, there's some things that we know, and there's some things that we just don't know. And there's a disease we found that is just aging, that you create tau of aging, and it looks kind of like CTE. And there's been a mistake in old research that some people were diagnosed as CTE, and it was just a disorder of getting old. You know, so as we understand more, we're better understanding that obviously we want to not hit our heads. We know that hitting our head is not good, you know, but we also want to understand that we don't want people to go into an anxiety attack because if they hit their head, they think they're a guaranteed prescription for dementia because, A, that's just really not the case, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, and I hear in my, I hear in my group all the time. Yeah. I think there's a slight delay. Sorry. Um, I keep hearing in my group all the time that people are worried they have CTE. They have heard, like, doctors are telling them, you know, well, you've had a brain injury, you're, you're more likely to develop dementia. And I have seen numerous people have their doctors tell them they have CTE, you know. And like you said, we cannot diagnose it until an autopsy is performed. So and here, I feel like it's kind of reckless. Yeah, let me explain to you, because it does seem reckless, but let me explain to you a problem in healthcare with this. You ready? You can't diagnose CTE without, uh, without being dead and having autopsy, but there is a disease that you could diagnose and code in which it would be like a traumatic encephalopathy, encephalopathy syndrome. And so it would be pretty much an idea that based on your history, it would be reasonable that you may have CTE and you can code that. And what that means is, and the scary thing is, is this is what you need for the criteria for that. 
Number one, a history of a head injury. So if you have a history of a head injury, that's one thing that checks, you know, the box. Number two is your symptoms came on later. It didn't come on right away. So you had a head injury, you didn't have symptoms, and then your symptoms came on later. Number, and third thing is that your symptoms have progressed and they're getting worse. So right away, if you have a head injury, you got symptoms later on, not right away, and they're getting worse, that's three things right away that puts you in the box. And now if you have one mood disorder, so if you have depression or anxiety or PTSD or any type of mood disorder, and if you have any physical symptom, that could be a headache, that could be dizziness, then you kind of fall into the realm of possibly being in that diagnosis. So when you start looking and just going into a random population of people in a psychiatry office who are there because they have a mood disorder, chances are if they have a mood disorder, they might have a physical disorder, whether it's just them or from a side effect of the medication. And now if any one of those people has had a head injury in their history and their mood disorder came on, whether it was associated or not with a head injury, but it came on later on, they technically can fall into that diagnosis of possibly having or a traumatic encephalopathy syndrome, which would correlate to possibly CTE once they're dead. And so that's the kind of worry right now is that although we don't know, there's kind of a broad scope depending on how the practitioner or doctor wants to label you of how they can label you. Okay, that's frightening because, okay, so when I had my brain injury, I mean, it was apparent right away I had a brain injury. And I had symptoms right away, but other symptoms came on later, and they definitely got progressively worse. <laughs> like, that's kind of brain injury 101. Um, but, I mean, you know, once I got the proper treatment, my symptoms diminished or went away for some of them, you know, so that is really frightening that that is what's happening out in the traditional medical world. It's yeah. This is why awareness and education is important. You know, money dictates research and most of the money. And again, this isn't negative. We need a multifaceted yeah. approach yeah. to understand yeah. concussion, right? So it's not negative. Sometimes people could say something and it's like an attack on somebody. But the reality is where most of the money and research go to, it goes to pharmaceuticals. And my dad's a pharmacist. I'm not anti-drug. But that's where the money is. And so the money is trying to find a drug to stop CTE like they want to try to stop Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And I'm praying they find one, right? So hopefully there's at some point a drug that cures everything. But right now, realistically, it doesn't seem to be in the short term happening. And I think because a lot of attention is on the CTE and that side of the research, there's less priorities and funding for other therapies that might not be as profitable of a return on your research. Does that make sense? You know, so there are other therapies that are very valuable for concussion. And it's such a big issue. It's getting more and more available. It just comes down to the acceptance of good creation of good research because if we don't have good research, it won't get accepted to the guidelines. And if it doesn't get accepted to the guidelines, it becomes a problem to get education and treatment um, for all the doctors. So there's a lot of research out there, but if the research isn't good enough, then it just won't be accepted. And so right now the guidelines are really limited to aerobic exercise, um, some basic vestibular therapy, and, you know, the certain like some neuropsych testing, but they're adding more testing to it. But we really want to talk about more treatments also to try to get people in the hands like you've seen 
there's ways even time after a concussion of improving your symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and talking about the neuropsych, I mean, anyone who listens to my podcast already knows, you know, that um, she told me I scored worse than a dementia patient on short term memory and then went on to tell me that I, you know, maybe didn't try hard enough and was trying to fake the test. And then wanted to put me on Ritalin, antidepressants, and sleeping pills. I was like, uh, how does that help my brain injury? And she just looked at me and said, oh, no, you're just depressed. And I yeah, like, and people, <laughs> yeah, go it's, ahead. Um, it's, it's, no, it's a misunderstanding many times. At, ready? So at, this is the way I look at the world in concussion is at best, Many people don't understand concussions, and they say poor choice words to very vulnerable patients, right? Because they just mm-hmm. don't understand. Yep. At worst, there's a whole field of neuromarketing where understanding how the brain perceives the environment. There's a whole field of how businesses can take advantage of human beings based on yeah. marketing. And at worst, there's so many therapies that continue to be marketed toward concussions. And every concussion is different. And I can tell you, if I say anything as far as a therapy, I own a clinic. That's how I make my money. I have no disclosures. I don't sell or make money off any products, you know. But you see more and more people who have these conflicts, whether it's good or bad, where people are starting to make money in multiple ways. And it includes testing. It includes products. And concussion is such a big market and growing that it becomes yeah. worrisome when a vulnerable population is getting told all different ways to treat their concussion, especially the at-home units with no diagnosis, no evaluation, and it's just buy this over the Internet and use it. You know, you just don't know, and hopefully it helps. But, again, people are vulnerable to sales tactics and to false hope and promises. Yeah. You know, I recently just was approached. I had a gentleman email me. They have developed a concussion treatment tool, um, and they wanted to put my name on it as an endorsement. And I was like, I have no idea who you are. I've never heard of you before. I was like, are you kidding me? No. Um, yeah, but that- it's, uh, it happens all the time. I can't tell you how many things I've turned down. I vol- like For most companies, if I do any help, I volunteer my time. I give them advice, but I'm too busy to be part of another company. You know, so every once in a while, I'll give advice to people and say, Here, here's an advice. Do, you know, if you want to do it, make your own money, go for it. I'm not asking for anything, but it would be nice to have that product. But the second, you know, you make money off of other things, it, things can be a little bit, you can justify things a little bit, you know. And when you look at people who have depression, anxiety, PTSD, these people in general, which is a lot of people, forget about concussion, if they feel like they've been slighted, or harmed in any way, they're not going to react very kindly also. No. You know, so when you start looking at people who are vulnerable, whether they really were taking advantage of or they perceive they were taking advantage of, there's no difference to that person. And so Uh when you look at concussions with mood disorders, for me, my first approach with mood disorders, you know, like I just had a recent case. In this environment right now, most of my patients that I'm seeing usually have some type of significant mood disorder. You know, I would say majority of the patients I've seen over the last few weeks because we're still open and about 80% of people aren't coming in. The people are coming in are usually either suicidal thoughts, severe anxiety, or like an acute concussion, right? These are the people that are really still coming in. And the first thing I do is I need to understand who you are. 
right? So my first thing is forget about the concussion. Who are you? What do you want in life? You know, when I see mood disorders, it goes well beyond just doing an eye exercise or doing some type of neuro rehab, you know? It's multifaceted. So the first thing I really have to do is understand you. Who are you? What were you like before the concussion? Because in a funny way, although it's not funny, the research shows that a lot of people with mood disorders before the concussion, a lot of times don't get new symptoms. They get exacerbation of old symptoms. So in some ways, I want to know who they are. In other ways, I want to know, did they have any symptoms before the concussion that maybe isn't new? It's just an exacerbation of old symptoms because of the brain injury. And then I could have a better idea of who people are, because here's the reality for most trauma. No matter what happens to you, there's a certain pattern that people typically go through. And at some point, even if something like a concussion, let's say, there's always going to be at some point, usually some inward anger, some inward disappointment that you could have done things differently. Maybe you could have made different choices that you were stupid to do this instead of that. So at the end of the day, Everybody has to prioritize their self and their health because if you have a mood disorder but you don't want to live or you're not ha- you don't have a purpose, you're not going to get better. So, A, you need to prioritize yourself. You need to forgive yourself. You need to accept your new self. And so until I know who you are, it's hard for me to even accept you as a patient, if that makes sense, because when you look mm-hmm. at a concussion, you're not looking at a concussion. You're looking at a human being who typically out of nowhere – unexpectedly had their life turned upside down. And it's not just about their headache. It's about their job they can't do. It's about the schooling that they spent years doing and the loans they have to pay off that now they can't fulfill. It's about their kids they can't take care of. It's about their parents they can't take care of. And these are the things that really people are the most upset about, you know? A lot of people will deal with headaches if they have to, but if they can't spend time with their kids or if they can't take care of their family, that is when you see really severe issues when it comes down to mood disorders. And so as a, as a practitioner, how do you approach these mood disorders? Um, you know, I, I would say I, yeah, definitely I had some depression, but I was depressed because of the reasons like you're saying I couldn't work. I couldn't do the things I used to do. I wasn't depressed. Like depression wasn't the root problem, right? It was a, symptom. Um, So how, how are you addressing these issues with your patients? Absolutely. So the first thing is without a doubt. And what we do know is that most of my patients are depressed because of their circumstance. They're not just have a depression disorder that came out of nowhere, you know, so, but but being depressed, no matter why is going to negatively impact your outcome, no matter who you are. So the first thing I do with patients is, Let's say your example. The first thing, if you say to me, look, I'm only depressed because I'm not getting better. Well, the first thing for your situation is education, you know, and really make you understand what a brain injury is and give you a new foundation of understanding of what happened to you, what really happened with the injury versus what you might have read on Google, and what your likely prognosis is of how long it's going to take likely to get you feeling better. Because most of the time, people are worried because they don't think they'll ever get better. You know, so I need to re-educate what the concussion and injury was in order to even start talking about your symptoms in the future. And, so I, and also often, look- I, I, hmm? I just want to add to that. They've often been told that they're not going to get better. 
You know, like I was told that at one year, oh, this is as good as you're going to get, right? Mm-hmm. Every I mean, my two new acute concussion patients, one just got a boat last summer and he fell off a bike and was knocked out two weeks ago. And he's worried about his boat. And the other one's worried because she can't work her job. You know, these are the, these are the things people are really worried about because it's acute and they're worried these symptoms are going to last forever. And they're being told just to sit and wait and pretty much give up the next two years of your life. And it's not going to get better by people, you know? Yeah. And so this starts off negative with a negative mindset and a negative concept of your healing to begin with. And again, healing, when it comes down to concussions, if you still have symptoms as an adult after two weeks, you're technically a post-concussion syndrome. You know, you're a post-concussion patient, four weeks for kids. And so if you're not feeling better within two weeks, forget about the underlying brain mechanisms. If you're not feeling better within two to four weeks, I mean, you have to do something. You know, sitting and waiting is not going to be your best option. And so you have to start being a little more aggressive and you have to start looking at your mood because if you feel depressed, the likelihood of you doing anything, it decreases, you know? So it comes down to your mood. It comes down to your attention. It comes down to your focus. It comes down to your goals. And so one thing I do with all my patients, especially with mood disorders, is I think we might've talked about this in the past, is I make them do two things. I walk into the room. I introduce myself before I do any tests, before we do any history, I tell them, I said, I want you to take a piece of paper and write five things that you do most every day. And I make them write five things that they do most every day, whether that's school, whether that's watch TV, whether that's on the phone, what are the things that you're spending most of your time doing? And then I give them a new piece of paper and I make them say, what are the five things that you value the most in life? And I tell them, no matter what happens to your head or your brain, if you're priorities are not what you're doing every day, I promise you, you're going to be depressed and anxious. It's just a matter of time. And I think the first thing to understand is that sometimes we get caught in this like rat race almost, and our priorities turn into something that really doesn't fulfill us. All of us have something inside of us that makes us feel whole, that makes us feel good, and that makes us really kind of feel like ourselves. And a lot of times as we get older, Although we want to continue doing that, we make excuses or we don't prioritize the things that make us feel good about ourselves. You know, so the first thing I want to make sure is people start prioritizing themselves. But the second thing from my experience, and again, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I don't try to be. I'm a doctor who spent nine years being sick, so all I could be is empathetic of my experience. And so I talk to people about my experience and knowing that it's not going to be their experience, but these are the things that my experience is. And by my experience and by treating other patients who had different experiences, people typically feel better helping other people. You know, for me yeah. personally, yeah. I went back to going to help going, becoming a doctor and trying to help people because helping people helps me feel better about myself. And sometimes people need to get a pet because maybe they're so depressed that they're not going to love themselves tomorrow, but maybe they'll love that dog who loves them. And in a few years with more things in their life, it might, you know, little by little. You know, so those are the things, you know, that we have a patient recently who's been bullied and she's chronically depressed because she got bullied as a little kid. And it's the same conversation where it's like, look, you've got two more years in high school. The reality is you might never love high school and you might never love the kids around you in high school and trying to pretend like everything's going to be great is just not realistic. So what do you want to do when you're 22? What do you want to do when you're 24? Why don't we start today and create goals and structure in your life so in a few years from now when you're in college and you're away from all these people who are mean to you, you're actually 
self-satisfied and you're not seeking other people's approval. And so when I talked about why I want to understand people, it's not about just their concussion because I can tell you a hard profession to get back into after concussions is teaching. I have a number of teachers who get concussions and they find it's really hard to get back to school with the lights and the sound yeah. and all the stress and the busyness. And it really is difficult. And they also are just burnt out. A lot of people, and this is just my, my perception based on a number of teachers with concussions. A lot of people love teaching and love helping kids, but are so fed up with the system of teaching and the structure of teaching. And so on one end, they get symptomatic because of the environment. And on the other end, they're spending a lot of their attention dealing with bureaucracy and dealing with things that don't relate to teaching kids. And so I've seen a lot of patients who end up deciding that maybe teaching is not what makes them happy anymore. And they actually change jobs because they realize that, you know, this is my new normal and I'm going to continue to improve, but maybe what makes me happy today is not what made me happy last year. And maybe I want to try something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know? you know, I, you know, for me too, it was like, I had been told by doctors, you know, oh, well, this is probably the best you're going to get. And then, you know, a neuropsychologist tells me I'm just depressed um, and I'm not getting any better, right? Like my symptoms are still continuing to get worse. And so what do you do? You just draw and self-isolate, which is all you know how to do, right? To self-preserve. Um, yes. And then, you know, when I finally found um, Dr. Schmo. You know, I was two and a half years into it, and I was very skeptical. I didn't believe there was anything he could do to help me because why would he be able to? Nobody else could. Um, But then, you know, as I started my treatment, and it was hard. It was really, really hard. And but I but I saw improvement, and I kept getting better. And I mean, I still have like bouts of depression but it's more situational I guess you could say right now um but like for the most part it's gone um and so you know like it is it's so important to understand like and then and then if you think about someone who's been told they have CTE right that's Mm -hmm. like that's almost a death sentence like why yep. would you even tell a patient that? <laughs> and like, oh my Not God, it just that. frustrates you, me. And what, and what do you think happens to the children of the parents who have CTE? What do you think those kids? So what happens with a father? And again, I say this out of experience. Like what happens when a father who played football or hockey and their kids play football and hockey and now the father's in his 50s and 60s and is demented and the kids in their 30s and 40s? And watching their father go through CTA, what's, what's going on in their head? What's going on? What do you think they're thinking about my future? You know, so it's not just about the person with CTA. It's the whole family. It's the children. It's this whole dynamic that's really terrible. And like we talked at the beginning, realistically, when you look at studies, and some of, the, some of these studies are argued a little bit based on how they did it, but there are studies that show up to 90% of people in prisons have a history of brain injuries. You know, there's studies that show 80% of women in domestic violence cases have histories of head injuries, either before or because of the domestic violence. You know, there's shown time and time again that when you look at youth concussions, it affects your reward system and dopamine in your brain. And dopamine does so many important things to your brain that it leads you to more substance abuse. 
And the more like you look at like professional athletes who are used to getting, or any athletes who are used to getting like immediate rewards for all their work, if you get concussed and you just took away this huge amount of dopamine they get every time on their field, you know, people in general are likely to get addicted to something, let alone someone who's an actress or someone who's in like a more, I don't know the right word, but, you know, when you look at how millions of people following you, you create, yeah, high profile, you create this own ego about you. And when you look at catastrophizing or when something's a catastrophe based on your injury, the more ego that you have in yourself, the harder that fall is going to be and the easier it is to fall to addiction. And when you look at right now what's going on, you know, we could argue to death what's the right thing, what's the wrong thing, who knows. But this is what we do know is mm-hmm. um, people socially isolate themselves, mood disorders go up, and substance abuse goes up. Yep. And when you're concussed or you have a history of concussions, the likelihood that those are going to go up are going to go up. You know, like that's just, it's just reality. And you've got to be a little more aware, like you were talking about. You know once in a while you might get depressed a little bit, but you've learned over time that you're going to make your brain health more of a priority. You've learned over time and you see certain things, you're going to take advantage of a time and get better. You know, so these are the things we talk to people about mindfulness, you know, about breathing exercises, about binaural beats, about walking in nature. If you live outside in nature, about different types of like full spectrum light therapy that you can get at home if you can't get outside or you can just get at home every morning to help your sleep or help with seasonal depression. You know, we do things like we do mantras. I believe that words are important and I believe that writing things down are important. And I believe that every emotion comes with a lot of neurochemicals. And so I had people really say, I love myself every morning. You know, I forgive myself. I have people say these mantras over and over again to try to rewire their brain into forgiving themselves. It's just saying I forgive myself over and over again has an impact on the brain. You know, even if you don't fully buy into it yet, it's going to start kind of melting that ice. And over time, it's just going to make things easier. And we do tons of goal setting. You know, when you look at the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe is associated with so many disorders. But when you look at mood disorders, sometimes it's not as simple as doing like a go-no-go task or doing different games to like for response inhibition, whether it's a Stroop test or et cetera. Sometimes it'd be really specific. You know, so sometimes you have to do goals. Sometimes this is why talk therapy helps when people are into it. You know, sometimes you've got to really talk through your issues and that has certain stimulation to your brain. So we look at neuroplasticity. We're always so quick in my specialty to talk about neuroplasticity due to, like, exercise. There's tons of neuroplasticity due to just conceptualizing, talking, and understanding things differently. And the reality is is both of our brains will be different after this conversation because we'll both have a different experience and learn things. You know, so we need to understand that talk therapy, CBT, um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, there's different therapies now, like EMDR, there's different, you know, neurofeedback therapies, there's NET or EFT, there's New Germanic Medicine. There's all these different types of therapies that are involving movement, breathing, thinking, and trying to take advantage of this multimodal brain, meaning that if you have a memory, let's say you were bullied, or let's talk about a concussion. Let's say you had a concussion, and that concussion forced you to get out of work puts you in financial constraints, you can't drive anymore, you're having trouble with your family, these are all part of your concussion. And when you think about your concussion, you're not going to think about maybe your car accident. You're going to think about your car accident and the led to your breakdown of your ability to take care of your family and living your life. 
yeah. there's no amount that I can talk to you and there's nothing that you can do that could take away that fact, right? If that's what happened to you, that's what happened to you, and no one could take that away from you without lying. But the reality is you can do something to deal with the emotions that are associated with that sex, yeah. right? No one's going to take yeah. away the fact that that car accident completely uprooted your life and made your life very, very challenging. It's maybe impossible, but we're going to have to work on the emotions associated with that, and we're going to have to try to get you better because if that cre- until you get over that emotional event, you will always have something holding you back, whether that's a mm-hmm. physical symptom, a mental system. There's always going to be something until you can accept what happened, forgive yourself. You know, maybe I shouldn't have been driving that day. I went to go to the bathroom. I shouldn't have gone. You know, people will come up with irrational things to try to think about how, like I thought, you know how many times I've thought about how I could have slept better or how I could do something different <laughs> instead of falling off the top. You know, like yeah. so people yeah. will come up with different ways to rationalize. So until you fully accept, understand what happened, do your best to get over the emotions and really look at your new self as a new self and start a new chapter in your life. Maybe that chapter is doing exactly what you did before. Maybe it's something different, but that concussion changed your brain and you need to accept that and you need to be empowered by that. And you need to take this advantage to really understand brain health because if you understand it now, you might protect yourself 20 years from now from dementia. And so a lot of patients, this might be a blessing in disguise that a lot of people who become proactive at a concussion, especially at a younger age, you know, we see a lot of college kids. And one of my big things I preach to them is understanding your brain health. Because even when your concussion gets better, use this understanding to make sure in your 20s and 30s and 40s you're taking care of your brain. So you're going to play with your kids and your grandkids when you're 80s, you know, because that is really what to me is most shattering in this concussion talk is we're letting people just degenerate without any sense of hope or understanding. There's things you can do to help your brain and symptoms, you know? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I reiterate over and over again on like my Instagram and my Facebook and people get annoyed with me, but it's true you and only you have the power to change your own attitude. No one else yep. can do it for you. You are the only one that can shift the way you look at a situation. And it's critical to make that shift to go from why me, this sucks, right? To like, well, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Um, and, you know, it took me a while to get there. And I'm before my accident, I was a very positive, optimistic person. So, you know, it took me a while to get there. And I get it. It's not easy to get there, but you do have to get there. If you, you cannot heal your brain when you are stuck in like a negative cycle. You have to be able to get out of that cycle. 100%. It doesn't get easier. Look, I, you know, as you know, I had concussion symptoms. But I also had Lyme disease for nine years. So I was sick for seven years without really knowing what was the cause of my problem to the point where I did self-isolate because I didn't know what to tell people. I didn't know why I was sick. So in college, I just didn't go out anymore. I just didn't talk to people. No one knew what was wrong with me. Why deal with them? And to this day at 37, I still have friends who don't understand my situation or make fun of me because maybe I didn't work in my 20s because I was chronically sick in bed and I didn't want to deal with them, but people still don't understand it. And so as a concussion, this is something you might have to deal with the rest of your life, whether it's friends joking about it, whether it's parents not understanding it. You know, you might be 
you might have a concussion at 20 and be 50 years old, and your parents still might not understand about your concussion. You know, and so it's about understanding and really accepting yourself and not really needing justification from other people if you really understand what happened. Support is always welcome and is definitely very, very helpful. But if you're relying on other people to get you better, you have to be the first one that really needs to initiate the care, right, like you said. And this is where, this is, as a business owner, this is where it's gray in marketing, right? I personally been so many doctors who told me that they were going to help me and who never helped me. And I don't think right. they ever lied to me, right? I don't think they were lying. Maybe somewhere, but I don't think they were lying. I think they really believed that they were going to help me, right? Like, I just think they didn't. You know, I just wasn't. And for whatever reason, it just I wasn't the right patient, but they promised they were going to help. And at some point as a patient, how many people are you going to withstand walking in front of, opening up your heart and your symptoms and your soul to people, praying they understand it, for them to either reject you or tell you that they're going to help you get your hopes up to fail. You know, and I know for me at some point, I just said, screw it, like I'm done going to doctors. Like how many times can I just get my hopes smashed, you know? And yeah. so, but it didn't mean I didn't get, it didn't mean I lost hope, right? Yeah. And so I can tell you when you look at hospitals, when you look at doctors and you look at our profession, the number one way to sell care is hope without a doubt, right? Because you, but you, you mm-hmm. want to instill hope with people and you want to give hope, but can you promise you're going to get someone better is difficult, right? And so that is, yeah. and I have yeah. friends who they market hope and it's not a good or bad. Everyone takes a different stance on it, but it's difficult. And the reason I'm saying it is because with that hope you're going to get better, you're not going to get better. If you don't believe yeah. you're not going to get, you don't Agreed. believe you're going to get better, right? Right, so you need the hope, you know, and that hope sometimes has to come from a professional who understands it better, right? And yeah. so that becomes this gray world, like we talked about in marketing healthcare, because you're typically dealing with concussions with brain injured patients who are vulnerable, and a lot of times, even if you can help them, what's the best way to communicate that to allow them to let you help them, right? And everyone does it differently. You work with Dr. Schmo, and Dr. Schmo is just a very friendly, upbeat, personal guy, you know? And so he has a certain way to people personally that people will just accept him. Maybe mm-hmm. some people don't have his personality and they've got to do it differently, right? Everyone's got to do it their own way. <laughs> yeah, right. Of, right, of how they're going to create validity, validity and trust in their patient. And it can't just be become, become, it can't just be because they're smart or because you're a doctor. And how many patients go to their primary care, their neurologist, and maybe their physical therapist or the chiropractic neurologist or chiropractor and being told different things from each person and being yeah. told not to go to that guy or do this one, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, there's not good management a lot of times between disciplines to try to do what's in the best interest for the patient. And, you know, so Dr. Traster, we literally have like one minute left, so I'm going to have to wrap up here, but I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you. Um, you are at neurologicalwellnessinstitute.com, correct? Correct. Yes. We are in Chicago and about half hour outside of Chicago, and then we're planning on a South Florida reopening, hopefully in the next year. Oh, awesome. And I'm then, glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, and if I could just say one last thing, what I would say is that just understand in the times we're in now, concussion and non-concussion, between yeah. all the hype and the mania and the media, wherever side you're on, 
you control your attention. Human beings' brains only process a very small percentage consciously of what their environment says. And the more you keep your awareness on negativity, the more negative you're going to be. And so there is a positive of awareness and education and information, but being in front of your TV for 10 hours a day, what happened in the beginning of the day, it's not going to change too much in an hour. You know, so the more you can be aware and keep your focus on positivity, on your breathing, on things that are productive, the better you're going to be in this time. And, you know, look at mindfulness, look at breathing exercises, look at binaural beats, and look at these things and think maybe you could do at home. Awesome. Well, I'm literally getting the 30-second warning. So thank you so much for being here. I could always talk to you for days at a time. Um, And, again, neurologicalwellnessinstitute.com. It's in the show notes. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. I appreciate every one of you who are listening to these podcasts. And I will see you all again in the next episode. Have a great day, everyone.